The network is always assumed guilty until proven innocent, and that has gotten even harder as new networking technologies roll out. VPCs, VNets, Direct Connect, Kubernetes, Calico, Weave, the list goes on and on. Making sure that things that should talk can and things that shouldn't don't is no small feat. How does an organization ensure that they are prepared for the cloud networking challenge? How do you select the right solution for a given environment? How do you monitor and troubleshoot the spaghetti monster of networks? And why was my application to become a Pastafarian denied? These are the topics for this episode of Day 2 Cloud. Welcome to Day 2 Cloud, part of the Packet Pushers family of podcasts. On Day 2 Cloud, we have a frank discussion of what happens when cloud stops being polite and starts getting real. This is episode 20, and I'm your host, Ned Bellavance, Ned1313 on the Twitters. I'm really excited to introduce our guest today. Andrew Workin is the Chief Strategy Officer at Blue Cat and a fellow Philadelphian. Welcome to the show, Andrew. Thank you. I'm pleased to be here. Awesome. So before we dive into the topic at hand, could you tell the listeners a little bit about yourself and how much you love Philadelphia? <laughs> Yeah. Well, unfortunately, I don't live in Philadelphia anymore. I live in Toronto now, but uh, spent at least a couple of decades in Philadelphia and, and love the city. And and when I do move back to the U.S., it's almost definitely going to be to the Philadelphia area. <laughs> I miss the city. But yeah. uh, I, I've been the chief technology officer and chief product officer at Blue Cat for, for about uh, six years now. And I've just recently taken on the role of chief strategy officer. And really, from our perspective, um, that that move is around, um, you know, in, ensuring that we as a company are focused on meeting the needs of our customers' broad initiatives and what's happening in the marketplace, um, and spending more and more of my time sort of on the where do we need to be in three years and how we're going to get there, and um, uh, as opposed to that being a part time of my role. So so very much excited because it gets me out in the field more than normal and. Uh, and I get to spend a great deal of time with customers and partners and really try to build that bridge to where we need to be to meet our customers' requirements. Right. And, you know, speaking of customers, that's kind of the, the topic of today is we've got these organizations and I'd say all organizations are dealing with this to a certain degree, but especially large enterprises, you know, multi-cloud and hybrid cloud are becoming sort of the norm. And, um, you know, just for simplicity, we'll call it multi-cloud when you're using multiple cloud providers and hybrid cloud when you're using at least one of those cloud providers and it's connected to an on-premises environment. But, you know, connecting all those clouds together, it presents quite a challenge from a networking perspective. So I thought we could walk through what you think some of those challenges are and how to start running with it with a, a properly structured out team in the organization. Sure. I, those challenges usually start from figuring out what you've done already, quite frankly, because, <laughs> you know, everybody or most of our customers are already a hybrid multi-cloud or a multi-hybrid cloud or, a, you know, there, there's there's initiatives that have started and those, they may have started from the outside in, meaning, you know, somebody in, in, in the business driving some new app or service that isn't necessarily coordinated with with global networking, for instance. So So things tend to just start organically. Mm -hmm. And uh, and then and and now you you have a bit of a mess and and things might be broken and 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 so now it's how do I how do I sort of discover figure out what we're doing already but then then apply an appropriate plan and and yeah for sure there are things like like organizational concerns and skill set concerns 
you know, there's there's a there's a tremendous pressure inside the infrastructure in the data centers in core networking to drive more and more automation to make changes faster. It's all about making changes faster, and and that requires new skill sets. It requires um, uh, new capabilities to be brought in. And, and then you go to the cloud where where that's the default. You know, you, mm-hmm. you, you shouldn't do anything by hand in the cloud. You you can't get into a switch in the cloud. And and if you're going to go build a network in the cloud, like a virtual private cloud in AWS, for instance, if you do it by hand, it's not repeatable and it, it's it's not it's not going to be um, changeable and auditable and governable and routed appropriately. So you, you go from a um, you know where where automation is. is is really starting to blossom in, in sort of core infrastructure and IT to a world where everything is automation. And, and so there's just this basic, you know, unfortunate like, hey, we're the cloud guys, we can do stuff faster versus core IT where, you know, it's not really the case. These teams need to work together in order to ensure that the apps and services that are being built and delivered on the cloud or the workloads are being migrated internally onto a cloud are are um are done in such a way that that's efficient that's repeatable that's meet the company's requirements that we can provide rapid access to these applications all around the world um we have you know real cases of of customers where you know they they drove a lot out to the cloud but the route to the cloud was the data center and and they actually caused performance issues because they were they were going you know across a continent to a data center just to go back to a continent to the cloud where where that app was so it's these things have to be done together and certainly there's organizational concerns and skill concerns in that process yeah i think you touched on a lot of important pieces there and i'm going to try to unravel it a little bit so when it comes to the the team and the organization i mean you you mentioned you've got your cloud team and they're the we are we're always doing automation we're moving fast we're doing things in the cloud and, and maybe they are not part of your core infrastructure team and they might not even have a networking background and then you've got maybe your networking team that's more uh, tried and true. We're working in the data center um, and we do small changes and and not super often. And, you know, we're worried that our network is a little brittle. So do you teach the cloud team networking skills? Do you move the networking team to the cloud team? Like ha- what approaches have you seen that are successful in getting the, the organization ready for cloud networking? Yeah, two different approaches. I mean, one is you've got to inject some uh, networking capabilities into the into the cloud teams, and whether that's I've seen cases where that meant actually taking some of the networking team and, and organizationally moving them in, into into the cloud team, so that so that um, that that expertise was there because um, it's a deep it's a deep expertise, and and mm-hmm. and again, doing this right oftentimes fundamentally means understanding how it's done internally and in the cloud. Um, or um, what we see more and more of, which is, you know, dear to my heart, given given uh, I'm a software builder, is, is a more of an agile type approach where you're going to create some cross-functional teams. So now, you know, forget reporting lines for a second. Uh, we're going to go build out uh, uh, not just a cloud network, but it's connectivity to on-premise. And so we need people with different skill sets, get that team together and have it work in a, in a time-boxed, agile-type way and, and come up with the right solutions. Um, and so if an organization can withstand and adopt and, 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 and nurture cross-functional teams, that works well. If the organization tends to be a bit siloed, throw it over the wall, and they haven't been able to break down those boundaries, then then those cross-functional teams can be a bit aimless. 
Hmm. Yeah. You know, you're not the first uh, person to mention agile on the podcast. And I feel like maybe I need to do a whole episode just about what is agile and, and how can it be adopted for the cloud? But I guess that's probably a topic for another day. Um, so assuming we've got a crack cloud networking team in place, I'd say the next challenge is probably one of design. I mean, you already mentioned that they're probably stepping into a brownfield kind of environment where you already have data centers and people have probably already already started sticking things up in different cloud providers. So, and, and even in those providers, you might have more than one subscription or in the case of Azure, more than one account and VPC and region with AWS. So how do you even begin uh, approaching designing and dividing up the networking uh, resources? One thing that is, is critical in that approach is a basic difference from sort of uh, traditional physical, you know, on-premise networking to cloud networking. And that is in the, in the, in the traditional world, a network, a network has a, has boundaries, you know, a network has, um, there's going to be odds and sods or different types of applications or whatever in a network. And a lot of that's based on what the firewall rules might be or where the routing is to that specific network. It, it's, the physical network is assumed to stay and I'm going to build the way it's secured around it mm-hmm. versus versus a cloud network where, you know, it's micro segmented, you know, there's, first of all, you, you can have tons of them, you know, but, but on top <laughs> of that, but on top of that, it, it's, it's segmented. Things can't speak to each other. You know, there's, there's no necessarily sense of broadcasting in a network because I need to enable the communication between one endpoint and one protocol and another, and I'm going to do that via, via software. And so the, I guess my point is the basic reason I'm building a network tends to be uh, a bit different and how long that network might live might be a bit different as well. And so you have to think about things in a slightly different way um, in, in the world of, um, in a world of, of the cloud, usually you're going to pin specific applications and services, for instance, to specific virtual private clouds as an example where you, you might you might have uh, in the physical world might, might not do it just that way um, and you do that because of what, what regions you might be using for for instance but 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 also you, you tend to group those sorts of like resources into a VPC that might have public access and one that doesn't and but so you're, you're I guess my point is you always architectures meet requirements and I think a lot of people sort of get in front of their skis, and they get very excited for very good reason because it's exciting technology about the technology and architecture and the things they can do with it. But you have to back up to requirements because architectures meet requirements. And the way I look at it is, is both AWS and you know Azure and, and Google as well, and you know it, it, they provide a really good set of, of blueprints of you know how and why you would do different things and and they provide a lot of guidance with these architectural blueprints on what sorts of networks you might mean if, if i'm building a, a kubernetes cluster and i want to distribute pods around to different availability zones different regions um then there's a blueprint for that and that blueprint is going to include their recommendations for what sort of networks you might, you know, how many private networks, how many public access networks you might need and where you're going to put bastion hosts. Like they have they, they have some good blueprints. Now, they're not, there's an assumption they'll be customized for your requirements. But the point is, that you don't necessarily look at these things as, as greenfield. And, and, and those blueprints are embodied normally by automation, by, you know, in the case of AWS, for instance, like cloud formation templates, 
where I can now make this thing repeatable. And again, in the cloud, everything needs to be repeatable. So one, it's back to the requirements of why you're building the network. And there's those requirements tend to be a bit different depending on cloud or on-premise. Um, and then there, there's you know, the traditional, how am I going to get there? It is, is, my, is my goal here? Am I also implementing um, strategies so that every campus and branch around the world can connect to the closest AWS that might have this application? Or am I still going to be routing stuff through data centers? Or am I creating some new regional network access point that has direct connect between these services? So there's both from the WAN and LAN side, there's some pretty heavy questions that need to be um, considered, which usually, again, go back to requirements. Uh, that was more about the things to think of than, but, it, but, but basically it's, it's, there's, a, there's a good chunk of stuff to think about, but there's, you know, we're at the point now where there's, there's a lot of lessons learned out there. So there's, there's shoulders of others you can stand on as well. And a lot, and, and a lot of those are embodied in blueprints. Yeah, I have noticed that both Azure, AWS, and, and even Google ha now have a lot of documentation out there. Like, you want to build this thing? Oh, here's some guidance on how you would approach that from compute, storage, and networking. And like you said, it's not going to be an absolute, this is exactly how you should do it, but it gives you some good guidelines to start with, and then you can design to whatever your technical and business requirements are. I, you, the other thing you mentioned is the lifetime of networks, and I think that's a very unique characteristic of the cloud because I've seen deployments where the dev team will spin up a development environment, including the network, just to run some testing and then blow the whole thing away. And so the lifetime of that network could be measured in minutes <laughs> instead of you know years. So it, it, how do you, it's dealing with that approach as well. Um, for sure. Yeah, well, hundred percent. I mean, we, we have a, a SaaS based part of our business and, and the development teams, um, sometimes there might be 40 or 50 different instances, like development testing type build instances of our application running. And each one gets its own set of, of resources. And, and does it in that case even matter if they're, if they're, you know, overlapping networks or not overlapping networks? Does it matter if, um, do I need to track this stuff? Do I need to know what compute had what IP address at what period of time, if it only existed for a short period of time, you know, and then there's the, then there's the next layer up, which is the, okay, so I've deployed my VPC, I've deployed some compute there, or, or maybe I'm actually using uh, Kubernetes or some sort of container-based solution. So I might even have an overlay network on top of my cloud virtual network. What's that thing? Can I even see it? So it's, <laughs> You know, it, it, these, these things come and go. That this ephemeral nature of compute now is is really sort of um, whether it's on premise or in the cloud. Um, the, the 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 nice thing about that sort of compute, not just from a from a you know a software builder perspective, but but from a managing infrastructure perspective, is it demands for micro segmentation. And, and so, from a you know what's allowed to do what perspective. Um, which again goes into traditional network design. If I'm doing that at the service level, I'm doing that at a higher level than the IP address level. That's that gives me way more confidence that what I'm building is is actually going to be secure. Mm, yeah, that's a really good point because I mean traditional networking, you're usually just relying on you know some VLAN segmentation that runs through a firewall or something, but now you have controls 
at a whole bunch of different layers and you can do it all programmatically so you don't have to necessarily do everything in the firewall and have that 10,000 rules. Exactly, and, and do it at, at higher level constructs, things like policies, as opposed to uh, ports and protocols and with the appropriate authentication. And, and so it's, it creates a lot of complexity, it's the wrong word. It, 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 there's way more to consider when you're building, if you wanna build it correctly. Um, but you're building it to be secure. And, um, and, and so that's, that, that brings a lot of power with it. But yeah, it, it's, it's, but it, it's just another good example of the requirements being different in different areas. And like, you know, I mentioned overlapping IP space. Some companies, like, you know, if I'm, I'm going to route to any of these networks, then if I don't have overlapping IP space, great. But if I'm running the same application in multiple regions, I might want the same IP space in each region um, where I've deployed my application. Um, you know, it, it's one of those areas where where what we do on the DNS side becomes quite important because you know if, if I'm going to be using different IP addresses for the same endpoints in different regions, then then you know DNS becomes a good abstraction layer for that. But these are decisions that are you know you, you make one of these decisions and you go for a couple of years. They're hard to unwind. So you know so so thought thought should be thought should be given. Yeah, it's almost like design is a worthwhile thing to do. Imagine that. Yeah, design design is a beautiful thing. And <laughs> the difference here, and again, I, I just I find it a very powerful difference, is with the you know the, the fact that you're going to, in, unless you want uh, just a ton of pain, you're going to automate the deployment of these networks, these routes, uh, VPNs, however where you want internet gateways, you're going to drive that through automation. And so the design can be embodied into something that's repeatable by nature, as opposed to into a specification that needs to be followed if people are still doing things manually. So so it's just, you know, from a design to code standpoint, from a, I want to go build this stuff, the cloud provides a, a, a you know, Greenfield, great landscape to 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 connect those two in a very important way. Yeah, absolutely. Um, another thing that you mentioned uh, is that you've seen a lot of different ways that people have gone about connecting networks. Since a lot of the times these networks don't live in isolation, or at least the non-development ones don't. Um, usually, the whole point is getting them to talk to each other and share some services, or you know, replicate data, or just have services talking to each other. So once you've got this network established across all these different clouds, what approaches have you seen that actually successfully tie them all together? Yeah, and and um, by the way, I've seen I've seen the other side as well, where where we have companies that uh, that have gone you know full board into Azure, and when one Azure needs to speak to another Azure, uh, routes back to their data center and uses their WAN. So I've seen it done you know incorrectly as well, but but no, but but ultimately. There's a few different strategies, both from a cost perspective, a performance perspective, and a management perspective. If if you're moving data between different regions of the same cloud offering, then taking advantage of their networking stack to do that is 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 a good thing. Mm -hmm. um, uh, in some cases, financially, it's an amazing thing. Um, <laughs> but 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 mostly you're. You're, you're using you're using sort of their WAN, their native capabilities there, and uh, and it works out quite well. Um, if you're going, if you're if you're distributing the stuff through multi clouds, 
then, then um, we've seen a lot of companies implement uh, direct connects across the different cloud vendors and their sort of core network as well. So they all become routable and, and therefore you can sort of pick the best route. If I'm going between, you know, this Azure instance and this AWS instance, obviously I want to pick the, the, the best route to get from point A to point B um, that doesn't send my data halfway around the world. And, uh, and therefore I most likely need multiple places where I'm, I'm connecting this. Um, and there's some third parties that, that provide this sort of direct connect and direct connect services bridging back to your data center. And that, that becomes an important thing as well. Um, or, or, you know, we see a lot of, of internet breakout as well, meaning campuses, branches, sites at enterprises that used to have no direct internet connectivity now have direct internet connectivity, at least to get them to said cloud, you know, and that creates many more points where there's connectivity, um, but, but um, ultimately provides a, a not just a performance advantage, but it's like a, you know, you're only managing the last mile to the cloud um, as opposed to your traditional WAN. And, and so we've seen different strategies. Fundamentally, you know, again, it goes back to requirements. If you're distributing workloads across multiple clouds, then you need to look at the best way to route data between those clouds as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I've actually seen the the slow move of big organizations from having just a central WAN point in your data center that everything egresses to, to this sort of more breakout mentality. And one of the reasons that I saw it happening was adoption of things like Office 365, where they didn't want all the Office 365 traffic coming back to their data center and then going back out to 365 because it was a ton of traffic. Uh, it made a lot more sense to have it just breaking out from the local offices. Uh, and uh, it required them to do some interesting security things and maybe adopt a cloud-based uh, proxy if they were going to do that. Right. But, uh, yeah. Oh, 100%. Yeah, I once asked um, uh, an Office 365 product manager, like, do you understand the amount of investment in, in core networking that this offering has driven and uh and this guy was was very much fundamentally more on the application side and, and and knew there was some but didn't quite understand the level of you know what it meant to do internet breakout at global organizations that could take advantage of of local points of presence of these applications it, it's um you know in many cases those networks are not routable to the internet there, there's no there's no route at all the only route through the internet is some traditional web proxy in a data center, you know, a thousand miles away. <laughs> exactly. And, and you know, and, and so now, now I've got to create a route out. That that's a pretty big thing, you know. And but also, I I, I don't want everything to go out. I just want Office three sixty five to go out. And 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 uh, and maybe I'm going through web proxy. Maybe I'll let more stuff out. But maybe I want, you know, I still want to direct a bunch of stuff back to the the data center. And then you find all these conflicts because since inside the network was basically sequestered from the internet other than through the proxy people did stuff on the inside of the network that that I, I have customers that that happily chose you know weird routable network space that that you know because they instead of RFC 1918 space or things that conflict with the internet that weren't conflicting before because they're going through a proxy and and so or, or from a DNS perspective they were using their external domains internally not in a split view way, but managed completely separately. And once you open the floodgates of going to the internet, then then your desktop can't figure out what's internal or external anymore. And how do I solve for that? 
Um, and so, yeah, there's some pretty fundamental changes there. And that's that's for the adoption of, of, of geolocated uh, SaaS-based services like Office 365 for one, for sure. But also, uh, we have a bunch of customers that are are, are adopting a cloud-first connectivity strategy. So, so again, it, it's from officer branch to cloud and then to internet from there and to data center from there. So their route back hmm. to the data center is through cloud and they're implementing cloud, cloud-based proxies and those sorts of things, or it might be you know, um, IPsec tunnels from each device to cloud, some concentrator and then, but they want to go cloud first because they're now, they, you know, it, it's basically in any branch or office, if all I have is wireless LAN and a uh, router, a WAN router, like a SD WAN router, for instance, I'm done. I don't need a firewall. I don't need. I don't. I don't even need a traditional switch because everybody's wireless. So I'll do, you know, wireless LAN and SD WAN at the branch, and then remove all that complexity. Everything is basically virtualized because a wireless LAN network is a basically a virtual network, and and um, and then the SD WAN uh, offering can help one route traffic in different places, but. But um, and so we've seen that sort of extreme as well, and and then um, and then obviously somewhere in the middle. But but I think I think this internet breakout, which right now is tends to be application focused or cloud focused, is it you know at, at some point the majority of compute we consume, the majority of places where we store stuff, the, our, our jobs during the day. I mean, I'm assuming. I mean, mine does. I'm assuming yours does already. But but the jo- jobs during the day are going to depend almost exclusively on using applications and services that are not in the data center. And the network was not designed for that. So that's a pretty big disruption. Yeah, no, I I can totally speak to that. Because in my previous job, before I went independent, um, my laptop that I used was not joined to the domain. And I used the guest network when I was actually at the office, because everything I needed to use was on the cloud somewhere. We had a data center, but, you know, aside from having to print something, I never had to use it. So I think that's becoming much more common uh, for a lot of workers. A hundred percent. And and if I'm, especially in our large customers, if they are building more internal apps and services, like you see this huge in financial organizations where still the vast majority of software is custom built. Mm-hmm. They're, building, they're building that new software uh, to use distributed points of presence around the world, not their data centers, usually cloud-based services, mm-hmm. could still be their data centers. And, and now all of a sudden, this isn't about simple load balancing, or I've got one version of this application in Asia and one in Europe and one in US. I need to make sure people are going to the one of three or one of four. It's it's almost like the world of um, of the internet where this thing should be running you know as close as possible to the users to drive as much performance and and therefore I might have the application running in ten or twenty different places. That that sounds particularly challenging, and I. I think the only way you can handle that is doing something interesting with DNS. Uh, have you seen what sort of approaches have you seen for, you know, I guess using DNS or something similar to handle that sort of, I need to get you to the closest endpoint uh, as long as it's up type of scenario. DNS certainly plays a role there. And like, we'll do things sort of like help with, with traffic, traffic steering. Um, and so, you know, what's the, what's as close as healthiest endpoint. The problem often becomes like, what's the definition of healthy? Um, you know, it, <laughs> right. it's it's not a ping. I mean, a ping is traditionally 
like certainly in, in like load balancing 1.0, it was something as simple as a ping or a curl. Like, uh, you know, is am I getting the expected request from this web endpoint, for instance, um, where now you have huge software suites customers are investing in, like things like AppDynamics, Cisco fired recently, where, you know, healthy now is a, is a restful endpoint. So I can ask some other system, what's the healthiest node? But yeah, but things like DNS becomes critical in that process because ultimately we're giving the answer of that, of that IP address. And, you know, and therefore uh, we can direct the traffic. So, um, and so we see, we see more and more of that. Load balancing via DNS used to be based on things like where is the DNS server? So the assumption is that the client would go to a close DNS server. And what you were actually bringing back to the client was the healthiest application closest to the DNS server. Hmm. Okay. And, and that, that makes sense historically, uh, you know, assuming that you have, DNS servers distributed around, then most likely somebody's going to a close DNS server and 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 there, but then what happens if that DNS server isn't available and somehow their DNS query got routed to a different data center, they're going to get the wrong answer because they're going to the wrong data center. So so that there's there's constructs now in DNS to allow the the network that the client is sitting on to be embedded into the, the DNS message itself so that you can start load balancing on more interesting things than where the DNS server is. You can load balance based on the client network or load balance is probably the wrong word, but more, more from a GSOP standpoint. But, but you know, what is the closest healthy service based on the client's network, not where the DNS server is. And, and that, that, that paradigm shift is happening now because it's not necessarily the case where um, your, your DNS servers are good proxies for that anymore because you're talking about things like cloud environments. Right. When it comes to DNS, I don't think people necessarily understand how critical DNS is to everything that works in the cloud today, Uh, whether it's an external application or an internal application or even like a Kubernetes cluster has its own internal DNS service that it's using, um, which makes it challenging to figure out like which DNS service you should use and when. Uh, what, What sort of mix have you seen in terms of sort of I've got my corporate DNS and then I've got the Kubernetes one and external. How do you kind of manage all those and merge them together to have a cohesive strategy? Yeah, and, and if they if they do need to be merged, right? And and so if you're rolling out a Kubernetes cluster, then then the compute running in that cluster is is is, is and should be isolated. And and that DNS running that cluster is critical for things like uh, service discovery, for instance. Mm-hmm. And you certainly and, and, and I guess what I mean by isolated is there's nothing outside of that environment that necessarily should have to look up anything inside that environment. And, and therefore, that DNS being published somewhere else isn't necessarily useful from a connectivity standpoint, but oftentimes um, our customers still want it from a uh, governance perspective. Hmm. What, what had what had what IP address at one point? And, and so in those cases, you know, Kubernetes has a um, uh, their their CNI their their interface into the world of, of networking outside of the cluster, and um, and and that can help both provision certain networks inside of a Kubernetes cluster from the corporate view. So now I can, I can control what network might get provisioned, but but also it, what what ends up being critical is how do I publish the the external endpoint of the applications running in that cluster 
back to corporate DNS so that people can actually access it. And, and there's the appropriate integrations from that perspective as well. So, you know, we look at it as a, um, it, it would be like a, an AWS Rapid3, it's the same same sort of paradigm when you're looking at the the, the private zones, the, what you build inside of your VPC, not, not the external side, where you're, you're welcome to not use Route 53 or not use Amazon's DNS at all. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, but good luck, um, you know, good luck with, with, with their application load balancers and with, with, um, with their, you know, EKS service for Kubernetes or they're, they're providing capabilities that, that help you create reliable, sustainable, scalable applications. And so, you know, the, the, the real critical thing for us is to provide the visibility and so oftentimes we pull that data back into corporate, but you can't force fit a different DNS offering there if, if that DNS offering actually makes the experience worse. And so it, it, it's, you know, thankfully DNS is a wonderfully interoperable thing. And, um, and we look at ourselves as to some extent the glue between these different things. Uh, but, you know, and, and, and we can mirror everything, but it's the, what you actually implement, the architecture, it comes from the requirements and, and you know, a, a traditional corporate DNS doesn't have what's necessary to be uh, Kubernetes DNS. You know, I'm going to use what comes with Kubernetes. Gotcha. Yeah, no, that, that makes sense. And it does also remind me that so many of the DNS services in the clouds are tightly coupled to other services. So you just have to be super aware of that if you're going to be using that native load balancing service in AWS it assumes that you're using AWS's DNS for everything. Uh, so, you know, tread yeah, lightly. So right. It, you know, exactly. And then, and then we are, you know, our customers deploy our DNS services up in the cloud all the time. And, and part of that's for things like smart forwarding. Um, you know, what, if I've, I've, I've created this wonderful segment world of some service running in the cloud, the service running in the cloud needs to access, let, let's say it's a, it's a, new awesome way for customer to order something at some point that service running up there needs to reach out to some other system that's still running on my i don't know my as400 in data center or something and, <laughs> and and so at some point there's going to be a dns lookup outside of the scope of that application and and so why should you why should you provide the entire DNS directory to that application? How, how can I make sure that things are only consuming what they need? And so we do a lot of, of things like a policy-based segmentation of DNS to allow, to allow uh, the interoperability with the clouds and then also sort of limiting the threat window, just segmenting what they can actually see. And then also the, the auditability that, that our customers require in terms of, of what's calling what. You know, there's there's a great need for many of them to log every single DNS query. It's a, it's a phenomenal way to gain visibility and, and then and then control as well, but certainly visibility. So um, and then and you know it's amazing how many application performance issues. There's this big joke in the world of DNS that at the end of the day, anytime anything is wrong, eventually you realize it's DNS. <laughs> and 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 you see a lot of application builders misusing DNS and, and that's fine when I'm running up in my development um, instance where, you know, my application is decided, you know, screw the OS resolver. I'm going to call DNS myself and, 
you know, I'm not going to worry about caching answer. I'll just keep calling DNS. And so it calls DNS a couple hundred thousand times during the day. And then all of a sudden you deploy it somewhere else and the DNS server is further away and you've added, you know, 75 milliseconds of latency in that call that you're doing a few thousand times a day. And all of a sudden there's performance problems. And, and um, we, we had a customer that this is on premise had a security agent deployed on all of their whatever user-based compute and they had an upgrade and all of a sudden that agent couldn't connect anymore and it was having problems and it was calling DNA. They doubled the QPS for the entire organization in a single day because that agent was madly trying to connect. It wasn't a DNS issue. It was a whatever, some sort of cert issue between their agent and their backend server. But to see billions of queries in a single day to the same domain from every single device, you know, and you, you look and you say, well, I mean, clearly they're not using the OS resolver. They would, that would be cached. These are long TTLs, you know? And so, so there, there's bad practices that get exposed as well. Hmm. Yeah, as a former uh, Active Directory admin, I can say that it is always DNS. <laughs> yeah, yeah. 100%. Seen, yeah, and especially Microsoft uh, had a tendency to leave a lot of detritus in DNS, uh, even after you removed a particular domain controller or you know upgraded a domain. And a lot of the times there was just stale records or something that was causing these really long queries to happen because it would be trying to hit a DNS server that didn't exist anymore or looking up a service record for a server that was gone. Um, so yeah, there's lots of bad things that can happen when it comes to DNS. Yeah, no, for sure. And those, those, I mean, and, and those are common things, you know, like, like, uh, you know, SRV record pointing to a server that doesn't exist on the AD side is, is, uh, you know, all of a sudden the DNS server sitting there waiting for a few seconds for a response and, everybody's hitting it and then combine that with the Microsoft OS resolver, which like every OS resolver these days is incredibly aggressive about getting the right answer or an answer, any sort of answer. <laughs> so, so it, you know, it used to be that, that, you know, you've got two or three DNS servers listed, go to the first, didn't get an answer, go to the second, there was some sort of pause. And now it's basically like, if I don't get an answer really quickly, then hit everything I know about all at once. So now all of a sudden you're querying three DNS servers at the same time for that same record that is on a machine that doesn't exist anymore. And so now the end result is this, this um, uh, amplification of you end up DDoSing your own internal DNS server because every machine is firing requests at it because it can't get an answer. It's always funny when these, I mean, funny is not from the perspective of people having these issues. I, I mean, I mean the, the, like when there is a broad DNS issue, because of things like caching, it's not clear right away it's a DNS issue. Things look like they're working. It's just a few clients that can't access something. Mm -hmm. You check DNS, DNS looks fine, but you're not checking from their machine. From their machine, they're hitting some server that doesn't have this information anymore, you know? And so you see this sort of, as records expire that were cached, like this sort of slow wave, and then the light bulb comes on, somebody's like, crap, it's a DNS issue, and, and then they start running around. But, um, and so what, what we do, and I, in no way, shape, or form, I mean this as a, as, a, as a blue cat pitch, but what we're doing heavily now on the research side, which I find fascinating, is we want, we want to, to push operational excellence on the DNS side to the fact that, I mean, we're, we're, we're doing analytics on every bit of data that we can get in for properly running DNS systems. So we can look for anomalies 
on the inside of, of what shouldn't happen. You know, if, if thousands of devices are trying to query a record, it's always come back with an answer. And all of a sudden there's no answer. There's almost no use case where customers yank out purposefully a DNS record that thousands of things are still trying to query. So somebody should know about that. And, and so we look for lots of ways like that to try to make it clear that it's a DNS issue faster as opposed to waiting for things to sort of expire. Yeah, it's interesting. It's almost like a tidal wave. Like the tsunami's coming, you see the ocean start going out and you're like, oh, that's interesting. And you're like, yeah. oh, wait, that's, oh, that's a big problem. <laughs> yeah, you know, exactly, exactly. And, and, and from a cloud perspective, um, what, what we see is, you know, like, a, um, like cloud, the, the first opportunity, like, you know, I've pushed something out to the cloud. I need some internal DNS records. I don't necessarily want to deal with the DNS team or I'm doing it quickly and, and didn't, didn't coordinate well. And so I know the answer to those DNS records. I'll just copy some DNS records up to the cloud. And, and that, you know, six months later, something changes and everything breaks and nobody knows why. Or I'm going to... Um, I'm going to utilize a DNS server that I know of. And then somebody moves that DNS server and has no idea that you're utilizing it. You know, there's, there's the coordination of, um, of these, you know, DNS server communication between the cloud and what's on premise it is critical that it's known. So it can be monitored and we can sure it doesn't break um, because that's sort of breakage happens quite often where there's an assumption that something's going to be static inside and yeah it might take longer to move stuff inside but it, they're putting lots of energy into you know virtualizing networks moving computer around internally as well and so something moves that you depended on and you have a hard-coded dependency it's going to come down and so you know th those are those are things that when when i'm validating a deployment architecture you know then you look for anything that has the possibility of breaking because there's an assumption that something I don't control is going to stay where it is. And, and that should never be the case. Yeah. I remember trying to retire DNS servers um, for, you know, uh, an active directory domain. And we always left the DNS servers running for two, like a month or two after we told everyone to make the change and then just watched the logs and had to call out people like, Hey, your device or, or application is still hitting this DNS server right. and that's going to break. <laughs> Yeah. as of this date so you need to update that setting and you know worst case it was an application that was written by someone who's since left the company and no one has the source code and how do you even change the ip address of that so that's yeah. yeah no doubt and and, and it's, it's why you know in, in in um we see a lot in in in, in uh, some cases we can do this across the cloud as well but we see a lot more of our customers these days deploying dns on an any casted ip address so that the actual IP address of an interface be becomes something like a management interface or you know so something less important. You can, you can extend that these days to the cloud, which is good. Um, it just depends on which cloud and which anti-cast protocols, but um, you know, making you know, th that everybody knows the IP address of the DNS server isn't necessarily a good thing unless it's the same IP address everywhere. Right. Right, absolutely. Yeah, the irony of DNS servers is you can't use DNS to resolve your DNS servers. <laughs> right, you just kind of yeah. got to know them. <laughs> yeah, there has to be one known DNS server to start. Exactly. All right, well, we're coming up on time. If you were to summarize a few key points for listeners, what are uh, some takeaways you would want them to walk away with? If I'm going to do this in silos and let the cloud team deal with the cloud networks, you're bound to fail. And, um, and so there needs to be a 
there needs to be a approach that considers the, the different requirements of each and what the right solutions are, not just about that specific application service, but how the companies can consume that application service globally. So there, there's a there's certainly a, a team of people from both sides that really need to get together. And then it, it's about planning and designing and execution. Looking for DNS is a good example, but we could have been talking about a lot of companies to do egress points outside, sorry, back through the data center and out because they still want to go through their, their proxies. So am I going to all of a sudden have a massive load on those proxies? And we, we've seen those sorts of issues as well, um, you know, where where this application is just pounding data out of a company to some, I don't know, web-based or, sorry, cloud-based uh, uh, analytics platform or something. And, and and we've seen proxies get taken down. So there's not just the core network, but any of any of these other components. Um, I need to look at the big picture first and understand where my data flows are going to be, and you know leverage leverage the cloud blueprints, leverage leverage the the you know use cases, and and you know obviously consider cost. But but at the end of the day, it's the the, the big mistake is considering these domains separately thinking of the core networking people as not being value add on the cloud side when they're tremendous value add on the cloud side, the solution has to be done um, across. Um, if people want to know more about you, uh, where can they find out more about you and what Blue Cat's up to? They're welcome to come to bluecatnetworks.com or I'm at a working on the Twitters, as you say. Um, <laughs> and uh, I'm actually uh, launching a, a, a podcast as well. Uh, sometime in the very near future called Network Disrupted. The, the purpose of this pod, I, I have this wonderful opportunity to go have great conversations with customer after customer after customer that aren't about what we're trying to sell them, but about what they're struggling with, what their initiatives are. And what I'm trying to do is, is bring those conversations into a podcast format. So it's going to be me with customers or some other people in the industry, hopefully mostly customers and um Talking about some of these topics, not from a what they're doing perspective, but from what their what what their perspective is on these, and uh, and so we're looking forward to that launching the next month or two. Okay, that sounds great. I will include a link in the show notes to the podcast if listeners are interested. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Andrew, for being a guest on Day Two Cloud. I had a really good time talking to you. Thank you. Enjoyed it as well. Thanks to Andrew for appearing on Day 2 Cloud, and thanks to you, dear listener, for tuning in. Day 2 Cloud is available via iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, and more, so if you like what you hear, please rate and subscribe. If you have suggestions for future shows, I'd love to hear them. Hit me up on Twitter, Ned1313, or fill out the form on my website, nedinthecloud.com. If you'd like to hear more entertaining and educational content, then I encourage you to check out the other podcasts on the Packet Pushers Network, especially my favorites, Data Knots and Network Break. Until then, just remember, cloud is what happens while IT is making other plans.